How important are our memories these days? I mean, can't we just outsource some of this stuff? Well, maybe, and maybe not. Hello, and welcome to Sharp, the podcast where we help you get a little better at the stuff you have to do, so you can spend more time doing the stuff you want to do. So now, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 46. I hope that you're having a great day, a great week, weekend, evening, or whenever and wherever you're listening to this. As always, I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to download us and put us in your ears. Now, we have an absolutely jam-packed episode for you to listen to. Last time, we looked at your brain. Well, not your brain, obviously. I mean, the brain. Our brains. And assuming that you still have yours, and the zombies didn't get it, I thought this time, it might be interesting to dig a bit deeper and have a look at a particular part of your brain. I'm struggling a bit because I'm That's giving me like an image of me sticking a finger into your brain. That's not what's happening here. We thought that it would be interesting to look at the memory part. Now, we often think of our memory as the thing that goes wrong when we can't find our car keys. But I've discovered that there's a lot more to remembering than we might think. So, come with me and find out why our memory is important, how it works and how you can help yours get better. And along the way, we'll learn what all of that has got to do with tattoos, shoes and Sherlock Holmes. Okay, before we get going, I've got 12 things to tell you. Dirt, Dirt, ear, guitar, garbage, garbage, speech, menu, menu, feedback, feedback, police, bath. Hotel, Hotel, clothes, clothes, coffee. coffee. Well, that was like a random list of words, wasn't it? Which is not surprising, because they are. But apart from being random, what have they got in common? Well, by the end of this podcast, you'll discover why they, and you, are pretty amazing. Now, you might imagine that as I do a podcast that's all about helping you get better, that I myself am pretty organised and that I love routines and rituals. And you'd be right. Take my start of day routine, for example. Here's how my day began yesterday. My alarm goes off at 5.55. I look in the mirror, smile and stretch. I go downstairs and drink some water. I do 30 minutes exercise. Meditate for 10 minutes have some breakfast, do my social media stuff for the podcast, I go upstairs, have my shower, and as you know, I end with 30 seconds of cold water. Always sets me up for the day. And then I do the usual stuff that we all do. I get dried, I brush my teeth, I noticed yesterday the toothpaste was getting low, so I made a mental note to put it on the grocery list, I get dressed and I go to work. And as you may also know, I have an end-of-day routine as well, which includes journaling, water, quiet time before bed and so on. 
So for someone who has these regimented, structured routines and who swears by them, why do I find that for the third time in a row this morning, I have yet again noticed that the toothpaste is low, yet again made a mental note to put it on the grocery list, and then yet again immediately failed to put it on the grocery list? Well, as you can guess, it's because of how my memory works. And like yours, it doesn't always work well, and sometimes it needs help. But with the advent of handheld devices and the internet, how important are our memories these days? I mean, can't we just outsource some of this stuff? Well, maybe, and maybe not. Let me give an example. How useful did you find your device the last time someone came up to you in a bar or a restaurant or somewhere and you knew this person, but you just couldn't remember their name. And if that's never happened to you, because you might be good at remembering names, see if any of these sound familiar. Forgetting to replace the batteries in the remote control. Searching the house for your car keys. Searching the house for your wallet or your purse. Standing in a room, trying to work out what you came in for. forgetting birthdays, forgetting anniversaries, coming home on trash day to the smelly bin that you didn't take out this morning. Pressing that forgotten password link. Where you parked the car. What it was that you meant to search for that then resulted in you watching YouTube videos for an hour and a half. Do any of those ring any bells? Now, as we've said, none of these things aren't problems that we can't solve. There is a solution for all of them. But in this episode, I wanted to explore the thing that's at the root of these problems, our memory. So, where do we start? What is memory? Because at first, that, that seems like it should be fairly obvious, doesn't it? But when you start to dig a bit deeper, there's actually more to it than you might expect. When we say memory, we're actually using one term to define a range of brain activities. The Brain Institute at the University of Queensland categorises eight different types of memory. So you've got your short-term memory, and a part of that is your working memory. This is where your brain keeps information to allow it to do something, like when you're remembering a phone number while you're trying to save it onto your device. Then in the long-term memory, there's not one, but there are six different kinds of long-term memory. So, for example, the memory you rely on to remember information, like trying to remember someone's name, that's a different kind of memory to the memory that you rely on when you're remembering how to ride a bike. And that, again, is a different kind of memory to the one that you rely on when you try to remember to do something in the future, like putting toothpaste on the grocery list, or putting your car key somewhere that you'll remember. For many of us, the worst thing about having dodgy memories is we forget those small things like remembering the passwords for our emails. But for other people, the impact is much greater. Let's find out what happens when our memories really go wrong. One of my favourite films is the film Memento. It was directed by Christopher Nolan in 2000, and it was written by Nolan and his brother. 
and it tells the story of Leonard, who's played by Guy Pearce. Now, Leonard is trying to find his wife's killer, but unfortunately, Lenny can't form new memories. He finds himself in situations and he doesn't know how he got there or what happened before. So he writes notes, he takes Polaroid pictures, and for the really important things, he tattoos them on his skin so he doesn't forget them. And his tattoos say things like, find him and kill him, or remember Sammy Jankis. And he tattoos reminders to help his strategy. So he has things like, learn by repetition, habit and routine. Hey, perhaps you could get our ideas from this podcast tattooed on you. That would look good. Sharp the podcast in big letters on your arm. Shout out to the first person that posts that picture on social media. Anyway, the best part about this film for me is that it's backwards. So as the viewer, we go on the journey with Leonard as he pieces things together, as he works out what's happening at each stage. So the opening scene in the film is actually the last thing that happened, and the next scene is the event before, and so on. You do have to pay attention. It's not a sort of film to watch after a few glasses of, uh, of your favourite tipple. But if you've not seen it, I really do recommend it. Now, Memento was apparently partly inspired by the true story of a fella called Henry Gustav Mollison. Now, Henry had brain surgery in 1953 to attempt to cure his severe epilepsy. And while the surgery did have some effect on his epilepsy, there was a terrible side effect in that he couldn't form any new memories. Now, while I was researching Henry's story, I came across two other people from the UK. The first is a chap called Adrian Ellis. Adrian Ellis is a man in his mid-fifties who lives in Swindon, a town in the southwest of England. And if you met Adrian, he might tell you his thoughts about his favourite football team, Arsenal, or any other subjects that your average English fella in his mid-fifties would tell you. However, if you ask Adrian how old he is, he'll probably tell you that he's 42. And he's not just being shy about his age. If you dig deeper on his memory about his football team, Arsenal, he'll tell you that they've just won the Premier League. But to date, Arsenal haven't won the Premier League since 2004. You see, in 2004, Adrian fell from a gantry at work, banging his head. Now, at first, the only injury that was spotted was a broken clavicle. But it soon became clear that things weren't right for Adrian. He thought that people were poking fun at him when they kept telling him that the thing that he was in the middle of doing had already been done. And before long, his friendships became strained, his marriage broke down, and eventually his parents became his full-time carers. It took three years before Adrian was finally diagnosed with anterograde amnesia. Now, unlike retrograde amnesia, which is where sufferers can't remember past events, anterograde amnesia describes the symptom of not being able to form new memories. It's rare, but its impact is devastating. So whilst he might be able to tell you in detail about events from 2004, if he's making a cup of coffee while he's telling you, Adrian might forget that he's actually in the middle of making you a cup of coffee and you'll need reminding of what he's doing. And this means he needs full-time care because he can go off for a walk, get lost and have absolutely no idea where he is or what he's doing. Now, another story I discovered is the one of Clive Waring. Clive was a Cambridge graduate and a musician 
and he developed a condition in the mid-80s as a result of a virus. This meant that Clive suffers from both anterograde amnesia and retrograde amnesia. I found that one of the most striking parts for me of the story is how Clive obsessively keeps writing on newspapers or any available bit of paper that he's, he's just woken up. He's describing that he's permanently in this stage of like having just woken from a coma. And yet, despite the hundreds of previous entries that he's written in front of him in his own handwriting, he doesn't accept those and he crosses them out because he believes that the now that he's experiencing now is the real one. There's a YouTube clip from a BBC documentary about how he interacts with his wife and how challenging it is. Here's a snip from that documentary. (laughs) Clive really only has less than 30 seconds memory. And sometimes it's as little as perhaps seven seconds. It's as little as a sentence. I'm going to see your sister, Adele. Her daughter's got married recently uh, in New Zealand. Uh-huh. And so they're having a party. Funny how the ladies acquire a different title when they get married. Do you know who I'm going to see tomorrow? Uh, Buckingham Palace. No, really guess. I do don't you, know. You don't know? Mm. Adele. Oh, I see. Do, yeah. you know, do you know why I'm going? No. She's having a party at her house tomorrow. It's her birthday, isn't it? No. Yeah. Do you know why? No. It's to do with her daughter. Yeah, I see. Do you well, know why her daughter's having a party? No. Guess. No, I don't. She's just got married. Oh, I see. She just got married in... Do you know what country she just got married in? No, I don't. In New Zealand. Oh, I see. Yeah. The sentence he is in, he will probably have forgotten the sentence before. You ask him a question uh, and he'll give you an answer but while he's giving me the answer, he's already forgotten the question. That's how short it is. Now, while I was finding out about these people's stories, something became clear to me. Severe memory loss obviously isn't just about struggling with remembering trivial things like your car keys. When it's this severe, it can fundamentally change people's personalities. And it suggests that our personalities and even our ability to interact with others, relies at some basic level on our memory. So I thought I'd see if I could find out more about this idea of memory not being a completely separate thing from the other things that our brains do. Let's try an experiment. How much do you think you're using your memory right now? Now, at some level, it seems logical, doesn't it, that you... You must be using your memory to tell you what the words mean. But it's not a conscious thing, is it? You're not thinking, Steve just said the word conscious, and now I need to go and remember what that word means. It just happens, doesn't it? But it's not just the words, is it? Take the following sentence. I need to buy some new shoes. Now, those words might tell you about something that's on my to-do list, and it is, because I do need to buy some new shoes. But how about if I say it like this? Oh, I need to buy some new shoes. Now, you can tell that I'm not particularly happy about this. And you get the sense from the way I'm saying it that buying new shoes might be boring for me, which it is. I'm not a big fan of shopping. But what bit of your brain 
is helping you work out that I'm bored just from the way that I've said those words. And is it a different bit to the bit that's also telling you what the words mean? How about if I change the way I'm talking and put a bit of energy into it? I need to buy some new shoes. Well, that sounds different, doesn't it? You might get the sense that I'm feeling more positive. You may even be able to imagine what I'm doing with my body. I'm, I'm, I'm more upright and I'm smiling. It's a technique that voice actors use because you can't see them, you can only hear them. And voice actors will actually act out the body movements or the stances that the person that they're playing might be doing. The physiology changes the voice and then the listener hears the tone of the voice and can imagine the scene more vividly. But never mind what's going on in the voice actor's brain, what's going on in your brain? Would it surprise you to learn that your memory is part of the process that you're using to help you work out not just what I'm saying, but also how I'm feeling about it, and even giving you clues as to visually what I might be doing? According to research published by Sinead Mullally and Eleanor Maguire from the Wellcome Trust Centre for Neuroimaging in London, episodic memory, imagination and prediction seem to be linked together. So, imagining something and predicting an outcome both appear to have connections to your memory. Oh, and by the way, that's a trade secret amongst the voiceover world that I just gave you there. Don't tell anyone I told you. It's just between you and me. So despite having these little rectangular devices that go beep at inconvenient times and the ability to look up a massive international online encyclopedia that you can look at any time free of charge, I think you might agree that despite the devices and the advances in technology, our memories are still pretty important. But how does it work? And more importantly, can we help it get better? Well, so far, we've looked at tattoos and shoes now it's time for our first visit to Sherlock Holmes. We're in a university laboratory in the USA watching cognitive neuroscientist Janice... J Hang on a minute. Why am I whispering? We're not really in the laboratory. I'm only doing this bit to make the story more realistic. We're in a university laboratory in the USA and we're watching cognitive neuroscientist Janice Chen and her team. I haven't spoiled that for you now, have I? You, you, you're not now going to not feel like we're there watching it. We're watching it. Imagine we are. Janice and her colleagues are conducting experiments on people's brains and they're using a combination of an fMRI scanner and the BBC TV series, Sherlock Holmes. What she's doing now is she's asking the 22 volunteers to watch the first half of the first episode in the series. The episode is called A Study in Pink. Now, while they're watching, Janice scans their brains. So with that bit done, she's now asking them to describe the different scenes from the episode. Now, unsurprisingly, the different people seem to focus on different parts. Some people are saying Sherlock is rude, others are focusing on the flirting between the morgue assistant and him, and so on. 
And as we've already established, our memories aren't perfect. So it's not unusual, is it, really, that different people recall the scenes differently. However, what is surprising is what their brain scans tell Janice Chen. You see, despite recalling and telling different stories or different versions of the scene, their brain scans are very, very similar. In fact, across the 50 different scenes, despite what the subjects were telling us happened, their brain patterns were remarkably similar. And you could even tell from the scans which scenes had Sherlock in and which didn't. Now this supports lots of recent scientific research which explores this idea that our brains fire in a particular way when something happens and then they fire in the same way again when we're recalling it. It also suggests that the way this happens is not that different between you, me, and the other 7.5 billion people on this planet. Even if you and I see the same things, but then describe them differently, this research is saying that the way our brains are recalling it is very similar. And this brain pattern has even got a name. It's called an engram. The theory is that the engram it's like a footprint that's left in the brain for each event or each scenario as it happens. Now, it's generally accepted that things that make up memory, the sounds, the smells, the emotions, the sights and so on, are likely to be stored in different parts of the brain and they fire together to recreate the event or the situation that's being recalled. Now, all these theories and research about how it works and so on might be interesting. But why is it important to us? How does it help us remember where our car keys are? Well, we seem to be learning that storing information and then recalling it isn't a totally different function of our brain to imagining, planning, or even just general thinking. And if that's true, then the things that we can do to improve our memory are the same things that we can do to help our brain work better overall. Drink enough water, get enough sleep, exercise our body and our mind. The boring stuff, but stuff that can generally help your brain and potentially your memory. But as you know here at Sharp, we don't like to be general. So, what can you do specifically to help your memory? Well, for that, we'll need to come back to Sherlock Holmes later. But first, this. As I mentioned last time, I want to share some podcasts with you that I've come across that I think might add something different to your life. This week, I've discovered Ragbag. Ragbag is a podcast by Frank Burton. Frank is an author, he's a storyteller, and now he's a podcaster. And his show is, uh, well, I'll let Frank tell you. Have a listen. Ragbag is a fortnightly music podcast presented by me, Frank Burton. I play stuff like this. Oh, 
I mean, is this eclectic enough for you yet? What more do you want? I also tell strange stories and engage in some quality listener interaction. What a cracking, different, fab collection of music and chat and, well, I'm not sure how I can describe it really, and I think that's a good thing. You can get the podcast from frankburton.co.uk or all the usual places, iTunes and so on. Ragbag. Give it a spin. You might just like it. So let's recap what we've covered so far. We've looked at some examples of how our memory fails, and we've learned that there are different kinds of memory. And they seem to be strongly linked to other processes like planning and imagining. But how can we help the memory itself? Well, going back to the Brain Institute at the University of Queensland, they give a great analogy of how we can imagine the laying down of memories works. So they describe it like this. They say, the way foot traffic creates a path along a stretch of grass, so the more uh, a patch of grass gets trampled down as people pass along it, the clearer the path becomes, and then the easier then it is to follow. So it's almost as if a memory of the walking has been created. And the same thing happens in our brains. So the path in our brain is a neural pathway, and the more the neural pathway in our brain is activated, the stronger the synaptic connections along the way become. So taking that analogy further, if we want to help our memories work better, then we need to make that path clearer and easier to find when we need it. We need to trample the grass down a bit more, or literally make the synaptic connection stronger. Well, how do we do that? Well, I'm going to tell you, because I've got three memory solutions to help you do just that. So firstly, we've got a kind of a broad set of techniques that you can use when you're learning anything new. And then we've got two specific things that you can try. So starting off with the broad things you can do, here are my four top tips that I've gleaned from my research and my experience. Number one, use all your senses. And then when you're recalling something, stimulate those senses. So I use smelly pens in training because when people are using the smelly pens, it stimulates the, it's called the olfactory system, their nose basically. A good sense to stimulate is the sense of touch. So move around when you're learning things. And if you can, try to avoid sitting in the same place. This stimulation causes more parts of your brain to fire, embedding the memories more strongly. So tip number one, stimulate as many different senses as you can while you're learning the thing. The second tip is get other things off your mind. So try and manage the distractions, manage your priorities. I know a great podcast where you can learn all that stuff. The third thing is test yourself. So instead of just reading things, get into the habit of checking if you've remembered it directly afterwards by hiding the information and testing your knowledge. And the fourth tip, if you want a slightly less demanding solution than testing, is just try talking to yourself. So just Gently describing an event or some information can help cement it in your brain. So those are some general things you can do. I also said I had a couple of specific tips, and I'll introduce the first one with a story.
Back in the 1980s, I used to... I know, I know I don't look or sound that old. Um, back in the 1980s, I used to work in a large retailer in Britain called Dixon's. And as well as learning sales and all that stuff, I'd already developed a bit of an unhealthy interest in personal development. And I used to do this, you might call it a parlour trick, like if you're from the Victorian era. If you're not from the Victorian era, you might just call it a trick. I used to do this trick where I'd ask someone to write down 20 random things on a bit of paper and then to hand me the bit of paper. I'd then spend 30 seconds reading it, give them the list back and amaze them with my memory skills because not only had I recited the list in full, but I could tell them what words were next to what other words and even recite the list backwards. Now one day, I was asked by someone to do my memory trick. So I turned to a colleague who shall remain nameless because I don't want to embarrass him. And I said to him, Gary, can you write... Twi- I, his name isn't Gary, really. Um, I said to him, person, can you write 20 things on this bit of paper? And the more random, the better. So I give him the bit of paper. He's writing on there, scratching his head. He's taking a bit of time. And I said to him, are you okay? And Gary said, I can't think of 20. And I said, well, you, you can't think of... 20 like random things out of anything in the world ever and Gary said no so I said okay well make it 10 then I mean it's a bit less impressive but 10 will do so he spends a few more minutes and eventually hands me the bit of paper over and I look at it and say Gary there's only nine things on this bit of paper and Gary says yes I could only think of nine and I looked at him and he said to me and I don't know why he said this I was going to write shoe but I changed my mind. Anyway, if you don't know how this is done, prepare to learn right here and right now and amaze your friends. It's a simple technique which is used at a very advanced level by our friend Sherlock Holmes. In the TV series, Sherlock talks about his mind palace, a visual way of storing information. Now, the mind palace, or brain attic, is a technique that was actually first devised by the ancient Greeks. So the story goes that uh, the Greek poet Simonides of Sios, um, basically he was at a banquet in a big building, and he stepped outside of the building, and the building collapsed. And the banqueters who were left, the people that were left in the building, um, they were too badly damaged by the collapse of the building for people to identify their remains. But supposedly, Simonides was able to say, um, he was able to put a name to each body because he could remember where they were sitting. And this ability to remember based on location became the method of Loki, which is also known as the memory theatre, the memory palace and the mind palace. That information was from the Smithsonian magazine. So let me show you how it works. If you can, close your eyes. Now, I'll let you be the judge of whether you are somewhere safe enough to close your eyes. But listen to this story. Are you concentrating? Then we'll begin. You walk up to the front door of your house or apartment. So you need to get that image in your mind of your front door. And you're surprised to find that the door is all covered in dirt. There's dirt on the handle. There's dirt all over the panels. You scrape away the dirt from the keyhole You put the key in and you open. As you walk through the door, something scratches your ear. 
Something really sharp has caught your ear. And now there's warm blood oozing out of it. Can you feel that pain in your ear? Imagine that pain in your ear. So, you've just opened your door that's covered in dirt. Your ear's really hurting. You look down. Now, picture in your mind the bit of floor that's just inside your front door. What does that look like? On the floor just inside your doorway is a blue electric guitar. Now, you don't own a guitar, so you're not quite sure where it's come from, but just get that image in your, in your mind of a guitar just inside your doorway. Now, you've decided you don't want a guitar, so you pick the guitar up, you step outside, and you throw it in the garbage. Now, again, get that image really clear in your mind as the clang of the guitar hits the garbage bin or the garbage area, however it looks at your place. You now step back inside, and further inside your place is Abraham Lincoln, and he's doing a speech. So get this image in your mind somewhere just inside your home, and really imagine Lincoln there giving this big speech. You walk up to Abraham Lincoln, who is standing in your home, which is quite odd, and he hands you a menu, which is also quite odd. So you're looking at the menu, and again, try to remember the last menu that you saw, and make it exactly like that. Suddenly, you hear the squeal of feedback. Now, really hear that feedback sound, like the feedback like an electric guitar makes. You go to the window, and you realise that someone is playing the guitar really badly, and the feedback is really screeching. And as you look closer, you see that the someone is a police officer. In fact, there isn't just one police officer, there are hundreds of police, all swarming outside your home. Have you got that picture in your mind? It's not a pleasant one, but that's good. Suddenly, the police burst into your home. You panic and you run to the bathroom. You shut the door and you jump in the bath. Take a second to imagine laying in the bath. Now, if you don't have a bath, because maybe you've just got a shower, or you're in a studio flat or something, that's even better, because you're imagining being in a bath that you don't even have. Again, get that image clear in your mind that you're laying in the bath, and as you lay in the bath, you look at the door, and there's a robe hanging on the door, and as you look closer, it says Hilton. You stole it from a hotel, and that's why the police want you. Theft from a hotel. Think about the last time you stayed in a hotel. The police are trying to get in, so you look around and you see what you can use to barricade yourself into the bathroom. And all there is, is a great big pile of your dirty clothes. So you pick the clothes up and you try to pile the clothes up against the door. And again, picture that in your bathroom, all your smelly clothes, piling them up. But it's no good. The door bursts open. The clothes fly everywhere. And standing in the middle of the bathroom stands a police officer who is handing you a massive cup of coffee. Can you picture that? A very odd scene, a police officer in your bathroom handing you a hot, steaming coffee and you can even smell it. Okay, so if your eyes were shut, you can open them now. Take a second to, to adjust. Just pause. Don't speak or look at anything in particular yet. So that's a fairly odd story, isn't it? But I'm hoping that you'll recognise some bits of it. Do you remember the list of 12 things I told you at the start of the podcast? They were dirt, ear, guitar, garbage, speech, menu, feedback, police, bath, hotel, clothes, and coffee. 
Now, you may already know this technique, and if you do, you'll know that it works because we're all familiar with walking through our house or our apartment. But the items in the house, they're, they're incongruous. They're not supposed to be there. So the visual element of them, combined with them being out of place, makes them stick. And the more weird or crazy that you can make the items, the more likely they'll be to stick. Now, you can use this mind palace or visual association technique to remember shopping lists. You can use it to remember key points in a presentation if you're not going to be able to refer to your notes. Or you can just do it for fun to develop your ability to remember things. Another way of using visual techniques is remembering people's names. So when you meet them, try to make something odd out of their name and imagine them interacting with it. So my surname is O'Neill. So if you meet me, you can imagine me kneeling down with a bad knee, maybe really being in pain. And again, the more wacky you can make the image, the more likely it is to stick. So that's the mind palace or visualization method for remembering. Okay, so the final technique is one that I discovered at a new channel from the BBC. There's been a lot from the BBC in this episode, isn't there? Maybe they'll, maybe they'll help me promote it. This is an article I found at BBC Future. And this article suggests one simple technique that you can use every time you want to trample down that grass and make those connections stronger. And it's this. Do nothing. Yep. Spending a few minutes doing literally nothing after you've looked at or done something that you want to remember, apparently hugely helps those synapses stick. Now, they quote two studies, one from 1900, one from the early 2000s. And both of them showed that if you ask a group of people to try to remember things and then let one half of the group go about their normal daily routine, while the other half sit in a quiet, dimly lit room with no distractions, the no distractions group remember significantly more than the ones who have been looking at other things. In fact, somewhere in the region of 10 to 30% more. And it even seems to be effective with people who suffer from Alzheimer's. I'll share that full article in the show notes. But if doing nothing for 10 to 15 minutes helps you remember 10 to 30% more of what you're trying to learn, then that can make a huge difference, couldn't it? So there you go. I've saved the best tip until last. Do nothing to gain something. So maybe if you don't have time to develop Sherlock Holmes technique or a handy tattoo parlor available to help you permanently remember something, perhaps the best tip of all is to spend 10 minutes after you try to remember something by doing nothing more taxing than staring at your shoes. So we're just about to get into the takeaways. But before we do that, I just wanted to let you know that after the takeaways, I'm trying a little experiment to help you to help me to help you. So don't rush off. But first, here are the takeaways. Our brains and our memories aren't as reliable as we might like. So use tools and techniques to free them up to do the important stuff. If you're going to do a memory trick, select your volunteer carefully and ideally choose someone who can imagine more than 10 things. Use the mind palace or brain attic technique by mentally putting the things you have to remember in rooms in your house. The weirder, the better. If you struggle to remember names, use the visualisation technique to create images from people's names. When you're learning or remembering, try to stimulate all of your senses if you can, and move around. Try even hopping from foot to foot. <laughs> 
Remove distractions. Test yourself at the end of the session and talk to yourself while you're remembering. Set aside 10 to 15 minutes after any intensive study or learning or revising in the quiet with no distractions and let your brain cement the facts. We do this in the world of training all the time. We call it reflection time and it really works. Read up on the science behind our stories via the links to all the research in the show notes. That's our episode on memory. I hope you've enjoyed it and found something useful in there. Now, I said that after the takeaways, I wanted to do an experiment. Each week, we end with me asking you to share the podcast and so on. And I do it to the outro music, and then I always put a little funny in after the outro's finished. Didn't you know about the funnies? Oh, maybe you should go back and check them. Anyway, this time, I wanted to see if our memory technique can help you in the real world. I've got a list of 12 quick ways that you can make better use of your time and how to help the people around you do the same. So this is like 12 bonus takeaways. And in return, I'm going to ask you to use a little bit of that time to help spread the word. And I think you'll recognize something about the 12 tips straight away. Are you ready? Tip one. Dirt. Dirt. When you're sat in the car wash, getting the dirt cleaned off, make use of that time by ticking something off from your to-do list. Number two. Ear. Ear. When a friend is lending you their ear, ask them to give you their device and show them how they can listen to podcasts. Number three. Guitar. Guitar. Struggled a bit with this one, but I got it. Apparently, Jimi Hendrix's first guitar was a gift from his dad. Help your family out by sharing our ideas that work for you with them. Number four, garbage. garbage. When you're emptying the garbage, find one additional thing that you can throw away that's not adding any value to your life. And if you can't find a physical thing, delete one app that you never use or stop one activity that's really not doing anything for you. Number five, speech. speech. If you're doing a speech or a presentation, once you've written it down, find one thing that adds the least amount of value and remove it. You'll be amazed at how much better it is. Number six, menu. menu. So this one's a money tip, not a time tip. Next time you're in a restaurant or a cafe and you're looking at the wine menu, never choose the bottle of wine that's the next one up in price from the house wine. It's the one they want you to buy and it's often got the highest markup. Number seven, feedback. feedback. If you struggle to give people feedback on something they do which frustrates you, use the rule of three. Wait for it to happen three times and then say to them, did you know that on three occasions you did whatever the thing was? And finish by saying, each time you do it, it makes me feel like, and tell them how it makes you feel. It shows that you're not being picky, but it also shows it's happened enough times for you to raise it, but not so many that you've just started accepting it. Number eight, police. police. Um, next time, (laughs) I'm laughing because I, again, struggled a bit with this one, but I found something. Next time you find yourself watching a a mind-numbing TV show, like those True Life Police documentaries, take control of your time. Turn the TV off once a week and do one thing in your evening to help you get better at something. Number nine, bath. When you're in the bath, download an episode of a podcast that you've not yet listened to 
or one that you want to hear again and let your brain soak in the goodness while your body soaks in the tub. Hey, that was good, that one, wasn't it? That was, was a bit like an advert for a bath company. Number 10, hotel. hotel. I do this quite a lot, actually. Next time you stay in a hotel alone and you're waiting for your breakfast or your evening meal to arrive, instead of scrolling through your phone, take those five or ten minutes to reflect on your day or your week and think, is there something on your mind that you could take this moment to write down as an action and put it into your system or onto your calendar or onto a to-do list? There'll always be something if you think hard enough. Number 11, clothes. clothes. As you take your clothes off for bed, ask yourself, what one thing have you learned today? Or what one thing did you do today that helped you get better? Number 12, coffee. coffee. When you're next in a coffee shop waiting for that cup of joe, take a minute to get one more thing off your action list or think about what one thing needs to be added to your action list. If you did all those things in a week, you could maybe buy yourself back up to an hour of really useful time to get things done, get things captured, written down, reflected, or just get them straight in your mind. And if you did save an hour, would you spend two minutes just giving back by sharing our podcast with a friend, a family member, or a work colleague? You could do it by texting them a link to the subscription page on the website. There's a link to that in the show notes. You could share an episode of Sharp on social media. There's always one pinned to our profile page on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at Sharp Podcast. Or you could go onto iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you subscribe and give us a fab review or a five-star rating. That makes a huge difference, and it really helps spread the word. We would really appreciate you taking one or two minutes out of the 10,080 that you have available in your week and spreading the word. Thank you ever so much. I'm off now. Bye-bye. If you do have to be in one place while you study, stimulate your sense of touch by rubbing or grabbing or even pinching different parts of your body. I'm really sorry. Written down, that just looks that just looks perfectly innocuous. Please don't make it something it's not meant to be. <laughs> um, you can even try standing on one foot if you can get away with it. Because this cause...